is Saturday night, and as I said, it's the 28th of November, and we would know it's a Saturday night in autumn without looking at the calendar simply by hearing the sounds coming from the Berkeley High School football stadium. Tonight is a big game night next door, so this is a day of big wind today, huge, huge winds blowing. So that can be uh, a time of blowing away old things, blowing in new things. Certainly, uh, when the wind is strong, the air is clear. So if you drove around the bay anywhere today, you saw autumn colors. And I think it's it's people who say that autumn doesn't come to Northern California. That's just not true. I've had a chance to drive up to Marin County a lot recently and just really enjoyed watching the the subtle changes of orange and gold and yellow and red. And while it's not Vermont, New Hampshire, then again, nothing else is either. Vermont and New Hampshire have their own kind of autumn colors. But here in Northern California, there is a change of seasons, particularly autumn, that is marked. And so... uh, On one hand, we're heading towards winter. That's really the promise of autumn, is that the cold is coming when everything goes down to the roots to protect itself, the little spark of life down to the roots when it's really cold and and, uh, dead. That's winter. But then nature being the way it is, the Dharma being the way it is, there's rebirth of spring. So here in Northern California, we've had one of those transition days today with big wind and autumn colors, clear air. So please, um, could we have just a little bit more volume, Mike? 
So it's a little too quiet. Too much is not right. Too little is not right. Great. Okay, thank you. Yeah, better, better. Okay. Would you please turn in your sutra text to page 74 and 75? It says 074075. And we'll get started on our passage tonight. We have a big uh, full program this evening. Um, I have some new songs to introduce and also uh, we're going to finish with a, a slide presentation that I promised um, the slideshow that I took to China recently. So I want to show it tonight. We've got a nice powerful projector so the, the slides will look really crisp and the colors will look saturated. Good. So that's coming up tonight. All right. We're on page 74 in Chinese 75 and we're down at the last paragraph. So it says, um, this bodhisattva is good at knowing remedies for all obstructions. It's the last. If you want to find the Chinese, it's the, three, the third line from the bottom. Third line from the bottom. Shanji 善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地转行善知地地
up to and including in turn, entering the ground of the thus come one. Okay. Um, some of you are here for maybe the first time in our Ten Grounds lectures, or you don't uh, get to come this far uh, to, to catch up the sequence of the, the text. Some of you are joining us online tonight, I know, on our webcast, and, and uh, maybe the uh, text is new to you. So let me give a quick description to catch you up on what we're looking at. We're in the Flower Adornment Sutra called the Huayanjing Avatamsaka Sutra, and uh, this is one chapter from that sutra called the Ten Grounds. It's talking about bodhisattvas. This is really the handbook for teaching what a bodhisattva is, what a bodhisattva thinks like, how they behave. And as we uh, said a couple weeks ago, the, the bodhisattva has no face. This is a generic bodhisattva. It's just bodhisattvas in general. And the idea being that we can project ourselves into that faceless kind of paradigm bodhisattva. He's the generic, she's the generic bodhisattva. And uh, if we, uh, I think the sutra is definitely meant to be a, a handbook, kind of an instruction manual so that people can imagine. Suppose I wanted to live like a bodhisattva. Suppose I wanted to imitate a bodhisattva. Then this is, it's there to allow you to kind of like those cutouts at the beach, you know, you step behind it and put your face on the cutout and you're an emperor and you're uh, a pirate and, you know, uh, the idea is that way. You can put your face into the description of a bodhisattva and think, yeah, I could definitely do that. I could become more bodhisattva-like and that would be a good thing. So, um, when I say that, what I'm doing, I realize, is kind of taking the... Um, kind of the sacred, holy gloss, the shine off this text and bringing it right down in our hands, kind of putting it in our lap. Some people would even say that the sutra becomes like shoes that you wear. And that's not disrespectful. We're not diminishing the sutra. We're embodying the sutra, which I really think it's meant to do. Sutras have blood and breath in them. The sutras go... They actually, you can kind of see the sweat as the bodhisattvas lacing up their shoes for one more run because there's somebody else who needs help. That's really, I think, the way that the sutras are meant to be. They're much more um, flexible, living documents than they are sacred holy texts meant to be up on the top shelf and never touched. Uh, now, that being said, they are sacred texts. These came from the Buddha's wisdom and there's lots of difficult purity, difficult renunciation that allowed the Buddha to explain this text. But I think if we were to see the source of these texts, we would probably see one lonely meditator uh, who's done a lot of letting go of stuff so that he or she could find in the depths of their mind these principles. These, the sutras came from one person sitting still. And that was Shakyamuni Buddha. And when that work was done, there's this giant thing called the Abhidhamsaka Sutra. But it really came from one person's experience, looking into their mind, practicing yet another hour, 
cultivating one more night when everybody else was out at the football game. This bodhisattva was there thinking, okay, I haven't got it yet. I need, I really got to go deeper, got to go make my mind quieter. Then the sutra flowed out when that was done. So it's a very human experience. And it's a very, the, the, there's a saying that dharma arises from difficulty. And that difficulty means lots of lonely hours sitting there working at it one more time, one more time. So that's what our sutra, that's where it came from. It's a very human document. And this particular text, this, this chapter, is about bodhisattvas. And the word that comes up in tonight's passage is ground, di in Chinese. We heard di, di over and over again. Two, the ground, grounds one by one by one is what that means. Ground, ground means grounds and they're different there's a reason why there's 10 and not 9 not 8 not 11 and every one of those grounds um, is a, a stage it's a it's a stepping stone it's a, a level in the progress towards mastery of this kind of wisdom that's um, we could u- we could substitute the word level for ground it would work we could substitute stage it would work um, in in centuries past, if somebody wanted to do something well, they would find a teacher and they would become an apprentice. They would become what's called a journeyman. Then if they didn't die because of the plague or because of war, they could become a master. true if you made arrows. You know what arrows are? Those are called fletchers. So if you made something like a fletcher, that came from craft. If you made arrows, you were called a cooper. Right? If you made pots, you were called a potter. And there were definitely masters in these various trades and guilds. That's how you went through stages, grounds, in the process. Um, the Bodhisattva, I think, the path, this is a traditional path. This is an old, old path. And I think it's the same way. You go from novice to apprentice to journeyman. You know a little bit. Then you become, bit by bit, you become a master at it because you work at it. You, you do that instead of other stuff. So that's, our, that's what it means, stages. Think of, think of apprentice, journeyman, master. Same kind of thing, stages. So... Tonight it says, so I guess that's our quick introduction. That's what we're doing, is we're looking at these description of how a bodhisattva goes from a person like you and me who doesn't know much about, mm, about their mind, doesn't know much about their life, and then they strike up a question. What is this all about? Uh, the question that I've been using to describe um, the prince, Siddhartha, is the question is this all there is? Or even shorter, is this it? Right? Our prince went out to the four gates of the city after being promised by his dad that life was a bowl of cherries. One day he discovered it wasn't. One day he discovered he was going to get old, he's going to die, he's going to get sick, he's going to die. And the question rose up, is this it? Is this it? Anybody who's asked that question about their life is following the same process that the, that the prince did. 
that created all of all of this and all the, the rest. All this came from one person saying, is this it? Am I just bound here to get old, get sick, and die? And he was determined to find the answer to that question. And the answer to that question was no, because that's not it. In fact, there's a lot more, but you have to you have to find a method. You have to practice a certain way in order to answer that question. And he did, and Buddhism is the result, but it was certainly not an ism to begin with. It was one person sitting there thinking, I can't believe that I'm just supposed to fight my whole life to get ahead, and then when death comes, let it all go and start over. Is that it? Is that all there is? So that basic question launched all of all of this. And if we've asked that question ourselves, then um, we're sharing the same um, impulse that turned Prince Siddhartha into Shakyamuni Buddha. So the, the bodhisattvas on the grounds are people who have done that, who have asked that question and have then set out to find the answer to that question. So it says tonight, this Bodhisattva is good at knowing remedies for all obstructions of the grounds. So why would a ground have an obstruction? It's because um, the world of the ordinary, our ordinary daily world um, tells us that the senses are the ultimate. That life is about getting the best quality of sense input. That's pretty much the way the marketplace is set up. We want the best kind of things that please the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and even the mind, and that that's it. That will obstruct. There are obstructions to the grounds. Because if we buy that, then number one is we'll never have the final one. There's always a better one. Tomorrow there's always an upgrade. There's always a different one. A little bit different. I want a little different flavor. So I go to a new restaurant. A new ethnic cuisine. Um, that's certainly... If you, if you have enough money and you're in that elite group, you can spend your whole life going from new ethnic restaurant to ethnic restaurant trying something a little different. Tonight it's Ethiopian. right? Tomorrow it's Thai. Then the next time it's, uh, well, in the Chinese Chinese restaurants, everybody likes Hunan. If you like fiery food, you go to Hunan style. Um, if you live in the countryside, you go to the chop suey house for Chinese. Growing up in Toledo, Chinese food was chop suey and, and chow mein. Chow mein and chop suey, that was it. That was Chinese food, right? Then only then later, when we got to the Bay Area, did we discover, wow, oh, there's Cantonese and Hunan and Sichuan and, and then there's Beijing duck and all these different things. So um, th- if, if we buy the world's promise, then, you know, the phrase, she who dies with the most toys wins. That's the phrase. So if you have money... And you can buy all the toys, and you're sp- that's you're the winner. And it doesn't take long to discover that that's a small group of folks who have the means to buy all the toys. And if you ask the people who buy the toys, which is the toy that really delivers? Chances are the answer will be, it's not in the toys. Not in the toys. 
I had a um, okay to, before I launch into the story the conclusion the principle of this is that if you decide to cultivate there will be gang, there will be obstacles that rise up one of the obstacles is what the world tells you to cultivate the grounds you have to have what uh, one of my cherished college professors called a bullshit detector a bullshit detector is you hear what the world tells you and you go, uh-uh, I don't buy it. That's not true. That's BS. Right? There's, that's not the truth. It's, it's just meant to get you to reach for your money. To reach for the plastic. That's what it's about. That's not ultimately true. And if you have a keen BS detector, you can hear that message and not hate it, but certainly not fall for it. Or fall for it once or twice, but then you go, I'm not going to buy it again, because that wasn't the thing that delivered the happiness. The new one isn't the one that finally, say, the new one isn't the last one. There's always another, always another. You buy this year's, next year's is coming, and you go, but I thought I had the best one. That's what you told me. And now you say there's another one. It's a better one. Oh, come on. You just want my money. So having a keen BS detector is really an important criteria for cultivating the grounds. I got a shock, a real existential shock, when I was a first-year graduate student here in Berkeley. It was 1971, and I went to the Aspen Institute in the summer. The Aspen Institute uh, was a place for the rich and famous to come um, take some time and reacquaint themselves with what were called the enduring qualities, the enduring questions. It was set up, set up as a think tank for people who could afford it, and it was a very elite group, to go spend either one week or two weeks or six weeks um, meeting with scholars and experts and cultural resources. I was there as a cultural resource. I was a college student from Berkeley, and I was meant to provide uh, contact with hippies, yippies, and the whole damn zoo, they said. Right? That was Spiro Agnew's phrase. I was a young, angry person from Berkeley who had further been to Japan and had an experience with Zen meditation. So I was a valuable quality. And I was hired for the summer to be a resource person to go to Aspen Institute of Humanistic Studies in Aspen, Colorado, and join these discussions with rich and famous people. And that's a f phrase, right? The rich and famous. But in this case, it was. Rich and famous people were there, and I was a scruffy college kid who was there to, to talk about uh, what young people were thinking, you know. So the conversations were pretty interesting, and Catherine Graham, the editor of the Washington Post, came up to me after lunch and said, she said, um, you know, she said, I, uh, my son went off to study meditation, and at first I was really afraid because I thought he was going to follow a cult and get lost. She said, but then when I watched the changes in him, I thought maybe he was onto something. She said, I have to tell you that with all of the, the work I've done editing the Washington Post, she said, at night, I feel it amounts to very little. I really wonder what's, what's important in meditation. Would you tell me what you found? And I'm going... Yeah, but 
aren't I supposed to ask you? <laughs> aren't you the one who's supposed to tell me what it's all about? You, you know, you're the editor of the Washington Post, and you're asking me? I'm like 21 years old? What do I know? Uh, yeah, I can answer why, you know. But it was, it was kind of this very funny kind of reversal of roles. Here's somebody who has climbed visibly to the top of the ladder. She's in touch with presidents, and she, the Washington Post molds the opinion of a lot of Washington, D.C., which then molds the opinion of a lot of the world. And she says at night she just wonders what it's all about, certainly not in being editor of the Washington Post. So that was an interesting conversation, and I realized I didn't have much to say. I didn't have much to offer. I'd been meditating, and I tell you, when I was meditating in Japan, I spent a lot of time asleep, <laughs> a lot of time wondering how to make my knees stop hurting. My state was not very exalted, but I, you know, I talked to her, and she was concerned about her son as well, and thought that maybe he knew what was right. So he knew more than she did. So the, the world promises that the good part is in getting lots of stuff, getting the new one. And I, for me to say that's not happiness is, is false. That's not true. I, I enjoy getting a new upgrade to, to software that I use. And I'm on top of my Macintosh software. You know, I pay attention. If the system's upgraded, I want to upgrade to the system. But I don't wait for that upgrade to deliver the good stuff. That's the difference. And so the grounds can be obstructed by a lot of false information. False information comes from selfishness such as advertising. Buy our product and you've got the last one. You've got the real one. That's information that has a commercial message. In other words, there's personal benefit for a small group of people. That corporation and its shareholders and when you buy it. Um, so, the Bodhisattva looks at the world and says, hmm... How do I remedy that information that's going to obstruct me from cultivation? What does that mean? That means that if you spend your whole life immersing in the senses, getting the newest of the newest, and thinking that that's the place to use your time and effort, what happens? You'll meditate less. You'll spend less time looking at your mind. You'll spend more time pursuing the new sounds, the new flavors. That's okay, but when the time comes to get sick, get old, and die, you bring your toys to King Yama. Look, I got the best stuff. You go on to rebirth, but you won't. Blessings grow and life expand, and you can progress to the ground. That's the real stuff is Fu Hui, 
those two things, blessings and wisdom. And those are only cultivated. There's no, you can't um, trade them, you can't buy them, you won't find them advertised. In fact, the funny thing about things you cultivate, blessings and wisdom, is they look at Again, my story. Why, why am I sitting here and not one of you or more of you sitting here? Um, one answer, and that's this individual, Master Shen Hua. Um, I was, the very same time, I guess that was a really pivotal time for me. The very same time I went, I went to the Aspen Institute in the summer, when I came back from the Aspen Institute, I was sitting in the Durant Library East Asian Library in Durant Hall, which has now been completely gutted. Uh, I went by the other day thinking I would go take a look, and I was amazed to find the yellow tape cordoned off, and they're, they're renovating Durant Hall. It's right in the center of campus. But back then, it was a really, really nice traditional library. Durant Hall was the kind of library that said college, right? Lots of wood, lots of old chandeliers that had been there since the 50s and, and uh, the knowledge was in card catalogs and these card catalogs were hand carved oak beautiful oak with bronze fittings that you knew fingers had been pulling those catalog drawers open for decades looking for the knowledge in those card catalogs and this is the you know you had to find for example uh, I was looking for a particular monk who had written a particular commentary to the Prajnaparamita Sutra. So I had his name in Chinese and I had to go through these cards, you know, just drawer after drawer after drawer. Think of these, they're over your head, these card catalogs, up to your, you know, five, five feet tall. And pull the drawer open and take it down and these cards had a smell, you know, digging through the card catalog, looking for so-and-so, you know, Kamara Jiva, looking, oh, no, wrong one, put it back, take the next one, take it down. And the cards had brown edges, because so many fingers had moved those cards, you know, and you're looking through, and then you find the right one. Oh, wow, you found the card, you know, and you copy it down. There's one card, and the information on that card, you copy in your notebook with your pen, and then reverently, carefully put that drawer back, you know. And then you take it off and you go climbing up the stairs to the and the stairs, there's the book you're looking for. And it's all about the Chenchu, and you dig out the one, there's the, oh, there's the article. And you take that knowledge and bit by bit, you can piece together in my hundred years ago, what it was like when Kumara Jiva was there translating the Dr. Dula. So, wonderful experience getting knowledge, getting knowledge, knowledge information, information 
First it's data, then it becomes information, then it becomes knowledge, and it might become wisdom. Okay, it goes through the various stages. What you got from the catalog was the data. Then you put it together in systems, you have information. Then you digest it, it can become knowledge if it's yours. Bit by bit, if it's that kind of knowledge, it can cultivate, cultivate it and become wisdom. So that was the experience. And that was hard-earned. I've spent years in that library looking for information. But once I got that information that became knowledge, the next step in my mind was, does this live anywhere? Or is it only cards in a library? Is it a museum piece? Once I get this knowledge, which could become wisdom, that's a huge step from knowledge to wisdom. To go from data to info to knowledge, you just work on that. You kind of shuffle it, you synthesize it. But to go from knowledge to wisdom, where it responds inside you with principle, big, big step. Is there anybody who has taken that knowledge to wisdom? And I didn't know. I didn't know if it was really there. Could I find that? And then, one day, my former college roommate, my undergraduate roommate, called me up and said, come over to Gold Mountain Monastery. You can meet the patriarch. I said, where? I heard Gold Mountain Monastery. I thought, mountaintop. Streams, you know, pine nuts. If you're thirsty, you go like this. You know, that's Gold Mountain Monastery. There's probably a couple funny-looking beggars around who actually are the real thing, you know, with their staff, crooked, you know, and long beards. Gold Mountain Monastery. He said, no, man, we're in the Mission District, 15th and Valencia. It's a converted mattress factory. Come on over. I said, no way. I've been to Japan. I know what monasteries are like. It's supposed to be clear air, blue sky, wispy clouds, not pollution and buses and projects. He said, you're totally attached. You're just totally attached. Come over and meet the real patriarch. Not that fantasy. I said, mm, mm, what's the food like? <laughs> He said, Buddha's birthday, big feast. Come on over. All right. Why, I'd been cooking for myself, bachelor, grad student. You know, lots of brown rice and soy and uh, miso soup. So uh, I thought, okay, I'll go over, I'll go over. So I walked into Gold Mountain Monastery and had an experience. And the experience was that all of the stuff that had been going in my mind from a lot of it from Aspen Institute, that ratchety, 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 squirrel cage, ratchety, ratchety, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What's my future? And I walked into Gold Mountain Monastery and this, this cool feeling of my mind just falling quiet. And the incense, the wooden fish, that sound, you know. 
that kind of sound and seeing people who were not shopping but instead were going turning it back you know instead of where's the good stuff where's the, where's the fine, where's the last one that I'm going to buy you know they were like I'm going to sit here until I figure out which was the real one you know not the new one but the real one people doing that it went all the heat went away and my mind was just quiet and a voice said you're home you're back go to work that was a shocker because i wasn't used to experiences like that i was in a marketplace of ideas at the cal campus you know like that aspen institute where's the real stuff who's got the power and it was this you're home you're back go to work and the strangest thing was that something in my heart went like that like a knot untying itself i had no idea that i had a knot in my heart that was fear i recognized that it was a kind of a fear that i'd always held tight why what was i afraid of i was afraid i might not get the real thing i was afraid that all the stuff that i bought might not deliver the goods and when i got to go mountain that last fear went away it was like what are you afraid of the answer is myself but that's a long story but that fear that somehow i wasn't i might run as fast as i could i might be the smartest best and still not get the real one the real thing that not went and it was like okay so what did you expect what were you re- here you are go to work that was such a scary exp- now i hadn't even seen shrifu's face or heard his voice but just going in the monastery was that experience that funny strange what's that all about experience so immediately when i had that experience i ran back out the door back onto 15th street with all the noise and all the planes going by and the cars and the buses and the the gunshots from the projects across the street the the mess of the mission district in the 70s and 15th in valencia and thought i'm back in the marketplace <laughs> here i am again bang bang honk honk hey get out of the way buddy what do you think you're doing you know planes going by all that noise and smoke and hustle and bustle and striving to get the real stuff get it get it get it, get it. like that turned around and walked right back into gold mountain monastery that same experience of so what did you expect the real thing is like nothing it's just go to work no secrets and I thought mm well this certainly marks out one ground this is one piece of the territory i have to decide whether i've got enough courage to pick it up so had lunch the lunch by the way was delicious <laughs> way better than what i was eating every day in my own cooking and i saw master shrinhua and he came down the stairs to lecture on buddha's birthday and there was something familiar about him and something very scary about him because this guy was no joke he was no kidding and yet behind that no kidding was a lot of kindness a lot of kindness and yet i've been used to a lot of kidding people you could snow that's the word people you could fool couldn't fool him at all 
no fooling this man. He was going to look right through you, smile, and go, that's not it. You know. So that was my first experience of in the middle of the the gotta buy it, gotta buy it, gotta buy it world, meeting somebody who said, no, gotta cultivate it. Because if you can cultivate it, then it's really yours and it won't go away. And there's also, there's, there's stages, there's progress. You can measure your steps. You're on halfway to the first ground. You're on the second, third, fourth ground. The di di zhuan xiu, right? Every step, every stage has its marks, just like apprentice, journeyman, master. Here was somebody who stepped out of the sutra into life. He went from knowledge to wisdom. There it was. That was the deal with the abbot, was he crossed that gulf between more knowledge, which the professors certainly had. The professors I met at Berkeley were outstanding people who had taken their knowledge to a high level. Nobody better than a Cal professor of Buddhist studies or language or history or, you know, uh, political science or art history. They were the best. But to go from there to wisdom, big step, big step. Here was somebody who had done that. Infinite knowledge, but all in sequence, in stages, and every bit of it in service to wisdom, which brought it right back to the beating heart, to blood circulating, to pain and suffering. That's what the wisdom did, was it put it back into the body. It wasn't just here, knowledge. So that was my experience then, which allowed me to see that um, there was more. If the question is, is this it? The answer is, yep. No. The answer is, no. It's not it. There's more. There's a lot more. And the more is in cultivation. It's available. But boy, it's a hard sell because it doesn't look pretty. It's not shiny or flashy at all. It looks like a converted mattress factory. <laughs> Cold in there. Eat not enough food. You don't wear enough clothes. But boy, if you can cultivate the stuff you get is the real. That's the real one. That's the last one you buy. After that, the, the marketplace stuff is, what is it? Not bad, not good, just recognizable as being out there in the branches. It's always a little bit different, a little bit different, always renewed, but it's connected to the roots, but it's not the roots. When you cultivate the mind, you can find the root. And you go, oh yeah, that's all branch tip, the new one. But it's connected to something real, which is the human mind. And that's where accomplishment can be. Now, does it have to be Buddha Dharma? No. If you cultivate the arts, if you cultivate music, if you cultivate writing, you can get to that mind. You can come right back to that mind, which is the root. If you become good at anything, really good at it, where you work, sacrifice, renounce, in order to do that to an extreme point, to a point where there's transformation, that's also cultivation. There's that gap from data to, to knowledge, 
to data, to information, to knowledge, can you take it to wisdom? You can't. This is Dharma wisdom. It has to do with human experience. Okay, so I'm leaving the text behind here. I'm going on too long. The Bodhisattva is good at knowing remedies for all obstructions of the grounds. One obstruction of the grounds is what the world tells you is good. If you buy it, your grounds are obstructed. You won't make progress along the Bodhisattva path. Not that you hate it, fear it, you just see through it. You say, no, that's not the real thing. That's a branch tip. That's a leaf on the branch tip. I'm going to come back to the root. So then you counter, you you counteract the obstacles to the grounds. And the grounds progress. You make progress. You go forward. Okay, what else? Notice there's a bunch of good at knowing. We have shanjir two, three. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Typical avatamsaka, there are ten. There's a list of ten shanjir good at knowing. The Bodhisattva is skillful, skillfully recognizes these things. That's the way our sutra is built. Is it's built on good at? It's, I'm sorry. It's built at tens of things. There's always a ten. Ten in traditional knowledge means completion. Ten goes back to there's how many? Zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Right. Then you go back to the zero, which is ten. You add one more. So there's nine integers, nine digits, and you come back to fulfillment, to completion with ten. So the Avatamsaka is the the sutra of ultimate roundness, the perfect and full, Yanman. So it brings us back to ten. So we have ten shanjir, ten good at knowing, knowledgeable about. The Bodhisattva is really good at knowing how to recognize stuff that's going to obstruct cultivation of the grounds and plagiar, countering it, counteracting it. Um, before we go on to the next one, I need to say one more thing about okay? this There's an important principle of cultivation here. Remedies is the word in English. A remedy. Remedy, you think of, if you're sick, you need a good remedy. Okay? A remedy is what cures you. And in Asian medicine, let's say Chinese medicine, Indian medicine, there's very much the idea of balance, harmony. Good health means you're balanced. Balance is, think of a scale, like this, right? Balance is there. That's too much one way, that's too much the other. Chinese medicine, traditional medicine, because it's also in Native American medicine, it's also in Indian medicine. The idea is, when you're sick, you're out of balance. So what do you do? You take something that balances it. You bring it back to balance. If you're deficient in something, you add. If you have too much, you reduce. That's balance. Remedy. The idea is a remedy. Western medicine has a lot of good things to offer, but often it comes at you remove, you cut away, you get rid of, or you, you kill. You take something to kill the virus. That's another way. It's another way. And if you, if you need to remove a tumor... Western medicine is exactly what you want. If you need to 
uh, repair a, uh, a strain or a sprain than Chinese medicine. There's nei kue, wai kue. So they both have their advantages. But the notion of remedy is what we're looking at. Cultivation uses remedies. At least the way I learned it from, from Master Xuanhua. For example, we know the paramitas, right? Those perfect, they're called perfections. Paramitas says there are six giving morality, patience, vigor, concentration, and wisdom. The way those perfections, which are the bodhisattvas, dharmas, are given is they say giving crosses over stinginess, right? Giving remedies stinginess. Morality remedies dissolution or an immoral lifestyle. Patience remedies anger or impatience, that kind of fire. Vigor remedies laziness or scatteredness. Concentration remedies lack of concentration, scattered focus. And wisdom remedies delusion. So they're always given as something to take to bring you back to what you weren't. Okay? So um, if you understand how to cultivate, you need to move towards, we need to move towards the traditional health model, balance. It's not that you kill something. I hear people say, oh, Dharma Master, I was meditating and my mind was just full of thoughts. I just had so many whirling thoughts. How do I get rid of those thoughts? How do you, you're supposed to, you're supposed to think nothing, right? You know? And I mean, I had those same ideas. And the answer is wrong. You can't think nothing. You're gonna, how are you going to think nothing? If you think nothing, you're dead. You know, and that's not a cultivated state. You know, that's the end of cultivation. So what do you do? You find a remedy. For example, use the Buddha's name to put, they say, fight fire with fire. Okay? In California, we know about forest fires and, and brush fires. Often what the forest fire fighters, what the firefighters will do is they'll start a backfire to burn the fuel so that when the big fire comes, everything's burnt. They, start, they make a fire block and they start a fire going that way. Of course, you have to control it. But the first fire burns away the underbrush and the, the big fire comes. If it doesn't jump, it, it goes out because there's nothing to feed it. So cultivation is the same way. You give your mind something to think about so all the random thoughts become one thought. You go, Namo Omi Tofu or Namo Guanyin Pusa. That's giving your mind a job so that when the ordinary random scattered thoughts that are there all day long come along, they go to work with one thought. So you you the one thought is also a false thought, right? But your mind is thinking, but it's disciplined and it's thinking about a good thing, which is Amitabha, the Buddha of limitless light. So you, you don't get rid of your thinking. You don't stop your thoughts. You're supposed to think nothing, right? No, you can't think nothing. Thinking nothing is a thought. I'm thinking nothing, I'm thinking nothing, I'm thinking nothing. You know? <laughs> Smoke comes out your ears, thinking nothing. Ugh, that smell of burning rubber. You know? That won't do it. That's going to burn up your gasoline and you're not going to be able to. 
So what do you do? You say, Namo Omitofo, and you put all your energy on that one thought. You can imagine Amitabha, this beautiful, incredible Buddha figure, right? Oh, how lovely. Yeah. And you're thinking something, but it's way better than, what's for lunch? What's for lunch? i got to call him back. How could they say that to me? What a pain in the neck. You know, the usual random thoughts that we're thinking. So that's remedy. And the Dharma is skillful remedies to the thoughts that are often fanal thoughts, afflicted thoughts. You find a way to counter it so that you come back to balance. And then bit by bit, if we can enter samadhi, then the thoughts become gradually fewer and fewer. But that's, you don't start there. You don't think nothing to get to the state we want. So the bodhisattva is good at knowing how to remedy things that obstruct, obstruct their progress into the grounds. What's going to obstruct progress into the grounds? Believing what the advertising world tells you? What do you do? You bring your BS detector forward and go, let's see, I bought the upgrade how many times? And they're promising me this next one is the one I want, right? No. I'll use last year's software and really put it to work. I'll use that for productivity instead of cultivating the new one, the new one. So that's a remedy. The BS detector is really helpful to cut through what selfish advertising tells you is what you need. No, actually, I don't need that. I have one. I have enough. I am grateful. Share the blessings. Hallelujah. You use the, the no greed mantra to counteract the uh, lure of advertising. Okay, so that's a word about remedy. You need to remedy these. You don't cut them off. You don't kill them or smash them. You bring up something equally true but wholesome, like the name of the Buddha. Okay, shan zhi di cheng huai. Good at knowing the grounds, success and destruction, or accomplishment and destruction. Good at knowing what makes the grounds come up and what makes them go down. Cheng is means successfully accomplished. Huai means completely ruined. What is it that makes the grounds work and what makes them break? Cheng is the grounds are you got it, why? You lost it. So what is it that makes the grounds come into being and what makes them go away? The Bodhisattva knows. He's good at that. Shams, skillful at knowing what is right and what's wrong for the grounds. Um, so is that knowledge? Yes. Is it wisdom? Well, the, the verb here is knows. So we're talking about knowledge. Um, the Bodhisattva knows about the grounds. He's, he's read the book. She's done the homework. Knows skillfully. Um, okay, we'll just, let's go ahead. Shan zhi di xiang xiang guo. Good at knowing the grounds, appearance, and 
um, realization. So A to Z. They're good at no, she's Bodhisattva is good at knowing the what they look like when they're in front of him or her, and also when they're I guess you say picking up and putting down. The xiang is you pick them up and this is the first ground, second ground, third ground. They're also good at saying they've been accomplished. They're they're realized. Shan zhi di de xiao good at knowing the getting and the cultivation. De means to get. How you get them and how you cultivate them. Um, could I ask just out of curiosity, how many Boy Scouts were here? Any Boy Scouts? Anybody join a Boy Scout troop at any point? No? Am I the only one? Girl Scouts. One, two, three. Good. Girl Scouts. Brownies? Yeah, yeah, okay, good. Girl guides? On? No? no. Y'all stop the Girl Scout. I was a Boy Scout. I got, I was uh, one merit badge short of Star Scout. You had to have five, and I got four, so I was not quite there. Um, merit badges were the deal. My goodness. That, the Boy Scouts is a very wholesome organization that can be abused unfortunately, but I think the uh, when it gets militaristic, it, it goes wrong, and there are certainly individuals who can take it in the wrong direction. Um, giving you knowledge. The merit badges were a neat thing. That was the way you climbed up in Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts was getting merit badges. And the merit badges were for a whole bunch of useful knowledge. Map reading, merit badge. Might have been called reconnoitering or orienting. Um, what else? Wood carving. Interesting. Knot tying, right? Sailing. If you were a Boy Scout on the coast, you could go sailing. Sailing merit badge. Toledo, Ohio, there wasn't much chance to sail. We had Lake Erie, but nah. Um, what else? Horsemanship. If you had a chance to ride, you could get a horsemanship merit badge. Very neat. Music. There's a music merit badge. You had to actually write a piece of music. You had to master an instrument. You had to perform. Very neat. So there's a lot of knowledge. And the grounds is a little bit like that. You apply yourself to the study of wisdom. I'll give an example. The second ground. R-D. The second ground we're, we're not there yet, but we're going to get there definitely, I hope, by the spring. We're going to keep adding pages to our book as we go, because we're translating as we go. And you notice there are typos here. There's a repeated phrase. That's okay. We're, just, we're still working on it. The second ground talks about what? It talks about the ten good deeds and the ten evil deeds. And that's one of the places in the Avatamsaka Sutra that is so clear cause and effect is right there I'll give an example if you think of the grounds as a merit badge right the second ground would be the merit badge for cultivating good and evil in other words ethics morality for example second ground says if you kill 
That would be breaking the first precept. It would be um, committing the first evil deed, shasheng. Sattva to follow. If you come back as a human, there are two retributions. One, short life. Two, lots of illness. And you go, oh my, that's really clear. That's really clear. Right? Killing results in you have short life. Killing results in you have lots of illness. Hmm. That's the Buddha's voice in the second ground of the Avatamsaka Sutra talking about good and evil. So, now it doesn't say this, but if you flip it around, what you hear is the blessing of bestowing life also results in wholesome rebirth. There are two good things that happen. If you bestow life, what happens? You live a long time and you're healthy. Right? So you flip it over. This is the, the, if you think of the ten grounds as a merit badge, the second ground, I never thought of that before. The second ground is the merit badge of virtue or morality. What it says so clearly is when people live a short lifespan or have a lot of illness, it's very possible that in a past life they have engaged in lots of killing. Now you think, I'm not a killer. Right, but I know I ate meat for a very long time and I watched my mom, bless her heart, to feed her kids, bought a lot of chickens, bought a lot of fish, bought a lot of ribeye, steak, porterhouse, T-bone, sirloin. We don't call it killing because why? It's a grocery store. We buy it all neatly packaged. It comes in the cellophane, you know, with a white styrofoam tray. But at some point, that belonged to an animal's body. And somebody killed it. You know. So you go, oh yeah. That's because we have grocery stores. We're not on the farm. But my grandma was. You don't go back many generations before chicken dinner meant go grab the chicken. Right? And that's, you know, there you go. There's the second ground, the offensive killing. Mom wasn't killing, she's feeding her family. Right? That's a good thing, to be a mom and able to feed the family. Something good. Maybe, maybe let's say, in a past life, I was somebody's wife, maybe the wife of a governor, and here came the dignitaries from the next province, and she had to give them a banquet. Because why? It's her job to put out the spread to host the new visiting dignitaries. You're going to give them tofu and brown rice? No, you're going to feed them good food. What do you do? Kill a lot of chickens. Do you call her a mass murderer? No, she's the host of a banquet. How wonderful. Happy, right? Not for the chicken. So that's what, yeah, the offense of killing leads to short life and much illness. We call it being a good hostess. The chicken would call it murder. So, you you know, it's just to think, okay, so here's the second ground saying, maybe if we have a lot of illness, it's because in the past we've somehow 
probably for very good reason participated in the taking of life. kind of meat you go to find my grandpa. You know. Where's my grandpa? You kidding me? Is that what the second ground is? Yep. The second ground is talking about. So think, did my grandpa die violently? My grandfather laid down by the side of a trout stream and had a heart attack. Very quietly, doing something he loved, fishing for trout. So, in his case, he also, if you'd use this principle, you'd say, he also had wholesome karma. He was a very good Irish man, going to church, raised a good family. So, he also had wholesome karma, but he had killing karma, too. So you think, okay, this is how it works out. Because we're not one story. We're many, many lifetimes. And every person carries with them all the seeds of all the things they've done. So in this life, we meet good friends. We meet a good teacher. We meet the Dharma. We can hear about it. Our lives are relatively peaceful. And yet some of us have really good health. Some of us have less good health. So complicated, huh? This is really the real thing. And Sutra says, the Bodhisattva is really good at knowing the Xiang and the Guo of all the grounds, the appearance and the success, the cultivation of all these grounds. So if you think of the grounds as merit badges, the Bodhisattva is good at using all that knowledge to change their lives, change his or her life towards a cultivating life. Now, when I first heard this, I was really, really upset because I thought, um, you know, what about my dad? My dad was a bombardier. Bombardier, if you've been through the World, World War II, that was, you had a picture of what that meant. We don't, now, boy, think about how esoteric. Now I understand a lot of the bombing in Afghanistan is done by drones operated by people sitting at a computer console in Tucson. They're going, hit the button and bombs drop off a drone airplane in Afghanistan. How esoteric is that? It's gone digital. Our killing is gone which was if you ever saw a B-24 it's scary they're made of wood and cloth <laughs> canvas B-24s were made in a factory somewhere in the US and then shipped to, to Germany or to the Pacific and they rattled and they were drafty and you had a little bit of place to put your feet and beside you was canvas and wood. They rattle and you, the engines would go and you'd go running down this concrete if you were lucky and take off in the air. And your job is to, to 
take these huge metal encased high explosive things called bombs and go mm, and pull and the door opens up and the bombs fall out of the sky onto the heads of people down below and hopefully kill them all. And then you turn around and you have all these fast flying Messerschmitt fighters trying to shoot you out of the sky sending bullets this big from their powerful machine guns through the air at you hoping to knock you down and then you land that airplane back on the same piece of concrete that may have bomb craters in it at this point and you're done with one mission that's my dad's experience in the war he flew 51 missions was shot down after at the 51st and survived but in the process of going up in those flimsy rattle trap crazy contraptions called bombers B24s he killed a lot of people going looking at his sight and going those bombs would lazily fall you've seen the movies right the bombs kind of drift down and then killing a lot of people I read this in the second ground in particular killing and I thought my goodness my dad I've outlived my dad by a decade my dad died very painful illness um, at a young age after successfully going through in defense of his country right who would say that people who rose up against the Nazi party and Hitler in particular were doing evil but if you ask the people who met those bombs down below they would say somebody killed us somebody murdered us right so how do you sort out the good and the evil in that very complicated huh it's like sort that one out very complex some of the questions involved are is a soldier protecting his country doing good or doing evil well it's not clear it's not black and white not simple but these are real questions and we're talking about this world called the Saha world and it's a world that is meant to be endured difficult to endure this is not a not the land of ultimate bliss right of Amitabha where there's no evil destinies there's no killing there so the Bodhisattva is good at looking at this knowledge and figuring it out what's the right thing to do this is why I like the Buddha Dharma one of the reasons because it puts it right in front of us and says here's the real stuff you can take this knowledge and cultivate it into wisdom somebody did it successfully that's the Buddha you can do it too and it's not fuzzy it's clear there are steps they're called grounds stages step by step by step work your way through and the farther you go the clearer you are on every step because your wisdom grows the farther you go into the merit badges or the grounds into the the accomplishment the wisdom that you cultivate the more you see and the more you understand so um, this is when you come to the Buddha Dharma you know when I say these sutras are like shoes you put them on to wear them this is when you look at it this way this is like it's a handbook for humanity this this is here to explain 
the answer to the question, is this it? Is we just supposed to come here, grab for all the gusto, cram every sense full of stuff and die? Is that what life is about? Believing the advertising, buy the new one, consuming it, still being upset, unsatisfied, die? No, that's not all there is. There's way, way more. Looking at human experience and saying, now I see, I did that, this is what happened. I do that different, something else happens. I can go and do that. It's in my hands. It's the dharma is there to empower us. Should we choose to answer the question, is there more? We can. We can answer, yeah, there is more. Take it for you know, as far as you can. Cultivate it. So, um, we'll stop at that point now. And Marty is going to carry on. He has so compassionately agreed to keep this process going because I'm going to be away for three weeks. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, I promised to introduce a couple songs. Um, as part of our investigation of the Dharma, we're looking at, at um, different expressions. Can we drop that back a little bit? Good, perfect. Um, music is definitely a way to express these ideas. It goes in, uh, actually it touches a different part of the brain, I think. So, um, it's called Wish to Repay, and I would like to invite you to sing along, if you like. The chorus goes... Thank you to the universe. Thank you to the earth and sky. I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. Okay? Thank you to the universe. Thank you to the earth and sky. I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. I've been trying to come up with a song about filiality for a long time and it's been kind of elusive this is the closest one I've got um, I find that every time I'm talking particularly to a western audience um, about filiality people just melt we're really looking for any kind of information about reconnecting something that the culture breaks our culture emphasizes youth youth is really where it's at everybody wants to be 18 you're 20 it's already kind of you know but 18 is the perfect you know make it up dress it up and pretend like you know gleaming it so we have grandpas who water ski things like that you know everybody wants to be young and that's not traditional knowledge traditional wisdom says age is valuable being older gives you certain a certain status just by being older already you've made it through you've learned and I find that uh, as I speak Dharma for, for Westerners more and more, people are aching for some road connecting back to our elders. Our style is, give me the car keys, I'm 16 years old, I'm out of here. <clears throat> Drive away, down the road, hit the road. And we don't look back. And we lose something when we do that. We lose our connection with elders. 
we don't live under the same roof as our parents, pretty much, rarely. And if you can, if you can stay with your parents, there's a chance to repay. Repay the kindness. Now, of course, inside that, there's a lot of stories. It's not easy living with our parents. Living with our parents is often really hard to negotiate because they always see us as that big. We're always kids. But the opportunity to repay that kindness is there. And it takes huge patience. But if we can, then that, that aspect of life nourishes our roots as people. We get fertilizer on the roots of humanity if we can repay our parents' kindness. So that message is, you can't put that in songs really easily, but I'm looking for, want to do that somehow. So here's, here's the first attempt. People ask me, what do you get from your meditation? Are you enlightened? Have you ended your frustration? The wise men and women who woke up, all those I reviewed, say the highest state is the wish to repay a heart of gratitude. Thank you to the universe. Thank you to the earth and sky. Try it. I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. Let's do that again. Thank you to the universe. Thank you to the earth and sky. I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. How many years did I waste waiting for my prize, for my ship to finally come in, for my payoff to arrive? But freedom comes not from getting, but from giving it all away. Sages say, once you see the Tao, you feel a wish to repay. Thank you to the universe. Thank you to the earth and sky. I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. One more time. Thank you to the universe. Thank you to the earth and sky. I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. That's called a wish to repay. That arose from, actually, from Ulambana. Remember when Madhvayayana um, wakes up and what does he do first? He looks for his mom. How funny. And then when I heard that for the first time, um, I...
that's really looking for parents upon awakening. Okay. Um, this is a transition to the next part of our program tonight because I went to um, China this month to uh, take part in the 50th anniversary of Master Xuyun, Empty Clouds Awakening, uh, his, his enlightenment. I'm sorry, mistake, his nirvana. It was the end of his life at age 120. <coughs> and Master Xuyun, Empty Cloud, is, is the important celebrated monk of the last 200 years in China. Everybody pays attention to him because he, of what he did. An amazing life. And the story, you know, about how he woke up was sitting in the Chan Hall late at night. Somebody came to pour tea in his cup and they missed his cup and poured the hot water on his hand. Right? And bah, dropped the cup. Ching! A sound woke him up. He was enlightened at that sound of the, the crashing teacup. <laughs> Every time I tell that story, people think, next chance I get, man. <laughs> Didn't do it. Floors littered with broken teacups, you know, still not awake. So, um, the sto- he wrote a verse about that. Um, the cup hit the floor with a ringing sound that echoed in the air. Empty space, too, broke to bits. My mad mind stopped right there. Then he goes on, so he describes the event, but then in the next verse, he, he writes two poems. The second poem has the quality of both wisdom and compassion. He says, burned my hand, shattered my cup, broken for good my mind, Families lost, people are gone, words are hard to find. So how bittersweet is that, right? Family is gone, family is lost, people are gone, words are hard to find. His mind is broken for good, there's nothing more. He's looking at emptiness, just universal emptiness. There's nothing at all. That's called junkong, true emptiness. But then the next verse brings it right back to compassion. He says, Spring is here. The flowers breathe their fragrance to the sun. Mountains, rivers, the earth itself is just the thus come one. So, in the middle of cosmic emptiness, which he's seen now because his mind has stopped, spring is here. The fragrant, the flowers breathe their fragrance to the sun. The flowers are blooming again and the sun is shining. Mountains, rivers, the earth itself are just the Buddha's body. So there's Compassion, right in the middle of emptiness. So that's Miao Jun Kong and Miao true emptiness and wonderful existence. So I thought, ah, there's a song. My mad mind stopped 
Dharma stories that sound not only Chinese but universal and one by one I'm hoping to uh, bring them forward because I think I mean that that's a mountain sound kind of a high mountain sound but whether it's Yunju Shan or or the, the Blue Ridge Mountains probably doesn't matter much okay why don't we dedicate merit um, and that's on your yellow sheet there in your sutra Make a wish and send out the goodness.